Mark chapter 2, as we are making our way, beginning our journey through the gospel of Mark. Last week, we finished off chapter 1, and we saw in the second half of chapter 1, Jesus walking in authority. Now, to us, we go, well, of course Jesus is walking in authority. But again, try and picture what it was like for the people there. Jesus had already been doing some teaching. He had called some of the disciples at this point. But then all of a sudden, not only is he teaching with authority, and, and we see that the people were amazed by that. Jesus teaches in a synagogue, and it says that they were amazed that he taught with such authority and not as one of the scribes. So the scribes and the Pharisees, when they taught, they would just basically not take a stand on anything. And they would quote other rabbis and say, oh, well, you know, rabbi, this believes that the scripture is pointing to this. But on the other hand, it could be this, what the, this rabbi says. Jesus got up and taught and said, this is what it means. And, and they weren't used to that. And of course, Jesus could do that because he wrote it, right? I mean, <laughs> how do you know it means that, Jesus? Uh, because I wrote it, right? And so he's teaching with great authority, but not only do we see this great authority, but we see him having authority over leprosy, disease, sickness, over demons, and that he is motivated by compassion. That when the leper comes to him, he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I am willing. And said he was moved with compassion. And Jesus takes it even a step further because he could have healed this guy at social distancing, right? And that was, they had their own social distancing that they did back then, um, especially with lepers. But Jesus makes a point to not only say, I am willing, but he touches him. And when he did, man, everyone would have gasped. It would have been the most shocking thing for a person to willingly touch a person with leprosy, especially an amazing rabbi, teacher like Jesus, he touches this man and says, I am willing. And then the man is healed, right? So they're seeing this incredible authority of Jesus. And we're going to see that continue into chapter 2. Uh, but we're also going to see what a huge difference there is between Jesus and everybody else, right? There's already been the, the understanding that he teaches with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. But we're also going to see that there's a difference in the way he does everything, the way he connects with people, the way he addresses people. Uh, and it's different, certainly, than the Pharisees by a long shot, uh, but it's also different from John the Baptist. And, and I think sometimes we kind of, I know for years I pictured Jesus being very solemn and, and very serious all the time. That's actually John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a ministry that was, well, well, we'll talk more about it as we get into it, but he was a very serious, intense guy, and so were his disciples. Jesus, on the other hand, was much more joyful than I think we give him credit for. And it's good for us to, to realize that and to see it in the scriptures. So we're going to pray, and we'll get into the rest, or to uh, chapter two. God, we thank you. We thank you just for the great life you have given us. We thank you for this beautiful day and that we can gather together in your name. Now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would apply these truths to our lives, that we would be changed. And uh, we give you full authority in our lives and in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 2. 
says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house immediately. Many gathered together, so that there, were no, there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near the house because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let him down, or let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, and take your bed and walk? But you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise and take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took his bed and went out into the presence of them all. So they they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. If you remember the end of chapter one, it said that Jesus could no longer come into the city. He couldn't go into Capernaum or any of the other towns there in Galilee because his fame had grown so quickly. And, and when he did, it just a massive crowd would, would arrive. So he was out in the wilderness. Well, now in chapter 2, he comes back. And sure enough, there's this huge crowd that, that forms. And, and again, Jesus isn't put out. He isn't like, oh, why can't these people leave me alone? He's, he just begins to teach them, right? And... Then these four men bring this paralyzed guy on uh, kind of a stretcher or litter. And, and to me, there's just this boldness about these guys. <laughs> they will not be detoured, right? That, that as they're coming up, there's this crowd, and they know that Jesus is somewhere in the middle of that crowd. And one of them goes, hey, you know what? We can't go through the door. Let's go through the roof. And, and to me, that's just so, so creative. Like, I'd be like, sorry, we'll come back another day, Right. And they're like, no, no, we can get up on the roof. Part of what's so funny to me in this is that being a pastor for years and knowing other pastors and everything, we all have this real thing about we don't want any distractions, right? You're teaching, you're teaching a Bible study, and, and if a person gets up, there's something in all pastors that are like, oh, you're distracting everybody. And here Jesus is teaching the word, and these guys are like hacking a hole through the roof, and he's... Apparently, he just keeps on teaching, and at some point, you know, they break through, and they're like, yay, we did it, and they let this guy down. It's a pretty big distraction. It's a pretty big deal. And Jesus just rolls with it. He's not detoured. He's not like, oh, you guys, you know, you're, you're taking away. He's like, no, no, this is actually what this gathering is about, right? And I think that's a good thing for us all to remember, because we kind of have our set, like, oh, the, here's how our formula works and how things are supposed to go. And, and maybe the Lord is going, no, I want to do something different today. And you don't even know it. In this case, this guy is let down through the roof. Now, I, I also love that when this uh, story is mentioned, that um, 
the credit for faith does not go to the guy on the stretcher. In fact, you kind of get the idea in every time that this story is brought up, he's a little reluctant. Like, <laughs> he never says a word, right? He's not the one going, come on, guys, you can do it. Get me in there. It's his friends. And, and again, when it says, when Jesus saw their faith, right? That's how Matthew puts it. The other gospels put it the same way that when Jesus saw their faith, meaning the faith of his friends. And I just wonder if he's like, no, 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 don't, don't do this. I, you know, don't interrupt the teacher. Don't, don't, you're digging a hole in the roof. And they're like, yeah, shut up, man. We got this, you know? And, and I, what I love about that is that I think sometimes we're called to be those friends that, that when somebody's down, when somebody's in the low place, it's easy for us to go, hey, I'm sorry you're down. Let me know when you're feeling better. I'll pray for you and we go our way. But it, there are lots of times that I think, well, maybe not lots of times, but there are times that we're called to be the ones to have faith and go, you know what? You don't, it's okay. You're low right now. You, you're struggling in your faith. I'm taking you to Jesus. And if I got to make a scene, I'm going to do that because I love you that much, right? And instead of worrying about, well, is this going to be an interruption? Is this going to be, hey, some, I, and I don't know what that's going to look like for all of us at different times, but being willing to go, yeah, I'm going to make a scene for you because I know how much Jesus loves you. And I know he's got a plan to do something great in your life, and I'm not going to leave you alone. I love it. I think these are, are a great picture of some of our callings in our lives to carry others. Now, again, huge distraction. This guy's let down. And there's different theories. You know, there may have been some roofs had this thing where you could like take spices or you could take things up on the roof. And it may have been one of those. But it does say that they broke through. So whatever, if there was a dumbwaiter kind of system, it wasn't big enough. And they made it bigger. Um, and they let this guy down. And if that's not shocking enough, again, Jesus' response is the last thing anyone expected. Even his friends, what they were hoping is that when the, he was there in front of Jesus, they cut to the front of the line, that Jesus would say, you're healed. And instead, he says something that no one expected, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, some people try and link that his paralytic state or his disease or whatever was somehow linked to his sin. And Jesus doesn't say anything about that. That's completely speculation. I think what it shows is, or it's a reminder to us and a revelation to them, is what Jesus has come for. Because while he did heal, he healed out of compassion. But that was not his primary reason for coming. His primary reason was to save us from sin, to forgive our sin, to pay the price for our sin. And this is the first glimpse that they get that's his purpose. And so, and I think, I just, in my own opinion, I think it's what this man needed to hear, even more than you're healed or walk. There was something Jesus knew he needed to hear, your sins are forgiven. And I think it was very personal. Now again, we're told that the religious leaders hear this, and, and they start to freak out. And, and like, who is this? And how can he speak these blasphemies? But it's important that they're not saying this to each other. They're not saying it out loud. It's, they're saying it within themselves. 
They're all thinking it. And nobody's saying it, but Jesus knows, right? And so he just speaks to what they're thinking. And, and again, <laughs> There's so many cool things that Jesus does where he's just like, man, I never would have done it that way, but I love that he just does things so smoothly. Um, these religious leaders, they don't know a lot about Jesus yet, but what they do know, they don't like. The reason that they don't want to accept him as being the Messiah, it's not because he hasn't already fulfilled prophecy, because they knew this. I mean, a little bit of research would have told them that he was from or born in Bethlehem, that he is already fulfilling a lot of these prophecies. The timing was all right as far as the Messiah arriving on the scene. So it wasn't that. They weren't dismissing it because they felt like his miracles were fake or that it was all put on or an act. wasn't that. Um, And there wasn't anything that he had done that was somehow against the Scriptures. The reason they didn't like him is because they couldn't control him. They wanted a Messiah they could control. They wanted a Messiah that looked just like them, that promoted their power, that promoted their temple, that promoted their religiosity. And instead, Jesus has already begun to dismantle that. And therefore, they're in conflict with him. Not once do they consider that they might be the ones who are wrong. And so even while they're thinking these things in their heart, Jesus addresses the issue of their hearts and he says in verse 9 which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and take your bed and walk now again this is the beauty of that statement there because for jesus he goes which is easier in other words i can do either one but for them and for any of us they're both impossible right to anybody who's understands at least a little bit of our own state, we can't tell somebody, hey, man, your sins are forgiven because I say so, right? We also can't, by our own authority, go, arise and walk. (laughs) So to everyone who hears that, Jesus is saying, it's impossible for you, but either one is easy as can be for me. Now, again, the critic would hear that and go, well, sure, okay, you can say sins are forgiven, but what's the proof? You know, you just selling some bill of goods that has no reality to it. You go, oh, hey, your sins are forgiven. Well, how do we know? Do you feel like they're forgiven? How do you know that you feel that? I mean, there's, there's no proof, right? And so Jesus delivers the proof, which is easier. I can do either one. And so I say his sins are forgiven, but I can also say, take up your bed and walk. And so that's exactly what he does. Verse 12 says, immediately he arose and took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, again, we don't hear a peep from the guy that was healed. <laughs> I, for some reason, just in my own head, I picture this guy being like this total introvert, not wanting any attention at all. And Jesus is like, there, man, you're healed. Take your stuff and go. And he's like, okay. You know, and he, out the door he goes. You know, and everyone else is like, whoa, you know, blown away. This guy's like, ah, sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, apologizing to everyone as he goes out. But, but again, Jesus is showing his authority. You know, he makes this incredible statement, and he will continue to make incredible st- statements to those who are around him. But now he also shows he's got the authority to do these things. That either one is easy for him. Verse 13 goes on. It says, then he went out again 
by the sea, and all the multitude came to him. And he taught them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard it and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. Mark goes over this pretty fast. And again, this is one of those things that you'd see, you'd think, I think that there would be more detail. But uh, it's a big deal that Jesus called Matthew, or Levi, as he's referred to in Mark's gospel. Because he's a tax collector. And the tax collectors were considered the bottom of the barrel. There was like, in fact, very often you find it in Scripture, it's tax collectors and sinners. But it's not that tax collectors are here and sinners are here. It's really the opposite. There's sinners and tax collectors because what they were doing was by choice. And sinners are like, oh, yeah, but they're sinners. They're horrible. They're whatever. They saw tax collectors in, as absolute traitors. And so just to understand what it means, Rome had conquered all the known world at that time, including Israel. And then they would hire people of Israel. That was their favorite type of tax collector. And, and so these people worked for Rome. And the way that Rome motivated the tax collector was to say, well, here's your monthly quota. You need to bring in this many taxes for that region. But anything you bring in above that is yours. And so not only were they traitors, they were considered thieves because they were saying, you need to pay more taxes, more taxes. Even though the quota had already been filled, they could take in as much as they wanted from their fellow Israelites, and it was theirs. They were hated. Uh, tax people still aren't really loved. Nobody loves paying taxes. But it was a huge deal. It was considered an absolute betrayal of their heritage and their country and all of these things. Uh, and so as Jesus is calling his disciples, first of all, he calls these fishermen, right? These are just the common blue-collar workers. These are the construction workers and, you know, the guys that are just out getting the work done and paying their bills. And then he, he'll call some guys that are the extremists, right? Simon the Zealot. These were like terrorists against Rome. These were Israelites plotting to overthrow Rome. Judas Iscariot. The family of Iscariot was just like the zealots. But people would go, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus would choose those guys. Man, they love Israel. They're going to give their lives for Israel. But the very far extreme from the Iscariots and from the, the zealots is a tax collector. And so Jesus walks by the tax office and goes, hey, Matthew, why don't you follow me? And again, I picture all the disciples going, what are you doing? You know, Not that guy. Anybody else but that guy. And, and we could miss it just how fast it happened be, be, because it just says, and he followed him. 
But it was a huge thing for Matthew to leave too. So all of his worldly wealth, which would have been significant, all of the, the amount of prestige that he had gained within the Roman culture and the Roman Empire, gone. And he was going back to a culture that saw him as a traitor and probably would never be seen as anything else except by Jesus. To me, it just blows me away. Again, I love who Jesus chooses to use, not just then, but now too, right? He could choose the best and the brightest, and instead he chooses people like us. And I'm so thankful that he does, right? I would have chosen better people than us. It's true, right? If you're going to start a business, you're going to start something big, who do you go for? Who's the top of the game? Who's the best? Who's the brightest? Jesus is like, who's the most common? Who's, who's the least and the last and the, and the bottom? I want them. Because I'm going to show the world what I can do through, through those people. Right? It's a huge honor. I love it. I love how Jesus does this. And calling Matthew or Levi is, is right in that same heart. That he desires to use people that can't take credit for the, or shouldn't take credit for what he does. And then what does Matthew do? So again, Matthew leaves everything and, and he throws a party for Jesus and, and invites all of his reprobate friends. You know, like he's the bottom of the barrel and who's he hang out with? The other people at the bottom of the barrel too. It's just how it works. And it says that there were many tax collectors and sinners and they sat together with Jesus. This is something I think the church, we've missed. I feel like if we're starting to understand it a little bit better. But if we look in the decades past, or you can go back further than that, that we've completely missed. Jesus hung out with sinners. And they loved to be around him. These, these tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all these people came to this dinner with Jesus and sat with him and I don't think it was like, oh, we're in so much trouble. And Jesus was like pointing this, you guys shouldn't do this. You know? They loved to be around him. They were welcome in his presence. They knew they were loved. They knew that they were cared for. And the people that were really uncomfortable with Jesus were the religious and the self-righteous. And somehow that's gotten flipped in the church. That if you talk to people that, that don't go to church, that it maybe never have gone to church, and you ask them, what do you think church is like? What, what are they going to describe? Oh, a bunch of righteous people sitting around talking about how great they are. We missed it. Because these people were, were excited. And there were many of them that showed up at this dinner with Jesus. And I think that's, that's important. It's important for us to remember. Again, who's the, who are the offended ones? The self-righteous, the people that were the high and the mighty and, and thought they were something. When they see this happening... They're upset. Now, the other thing that this kind of tells us how big this was is that it was most likely happening outside, that it was too many people to fit in a house. And that's why the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with these people. And again, in the, we've talked about this before, but it's good for us to remember how important it was in the Hebrew culture to share a meal together. I mean, it's still important. There's, there's something about breaking bread, sharing food, spending time with people, that, that it's very personal, right? I mean, you kind of learn what they're about, and you get a chance to talk, but in the Hebrew culture, it was more than that. 
Because usually there'd be like in the middle of the table, this uh, sauce or gravy or something like that, and there'd be one loaf of bread, and you'd tear off pieces, and you'd dip it, and you'd eat it, and you were tearing from the same bread and dipping from the same bowl, and the idea was we are becoming the same person. We are, we are being nourished by the same food. We are becoming one. And so to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would never eat with a sinner, with somebody that was you know, not in good standing or somebody they just knew was living a life that they shouldn't. Because why? You don't want to become one with them. And they're shocked when they see Jesus dipping in that same bowl and laughing with people and talking. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How is it that your rabbi, your teacher, would eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he be made one with them? <laughs> because that's why he's come. And anytime we think that we're above somebody, or that we wouldn't eat with them, that we wouldn't be connected to them, we are forgetting why Jesus came and how he met us in the same way. Now, with their question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' response is intense and powerful. And again, we could just go, oh, that's a nice picture, right? The sick need a doctor. I get that. It was so much more. And again, this would have been one of those statements that Jesus made, and the scribes and the Pharisees would have been offended, and the disciples and everyone at the table would have went, oh, right? One of those were like instantly everyone like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you said that. Because he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, and again, if we miss that, we go, well, that makes sense, right? That seems to fit with Jesus' character. It's a nice picture. But what Jesus is saying is if you think you're spiritually healthy, if you think you're righteous, I'm not here for you. You have no place with me. See, that's a big difference. It's not just saying, oh, well, everybody needs a doctor. It's saying, if you think you're healthy, then I'm not here for you. You're on your own. And again, it would have been shocking. Now, verse 18. It says, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came and said to him, why do your disciples... Excuse me, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as, he, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else a new piece will, new piece pulls away from the old, and tears, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now again, this is where we see this big difference between how Jesus did things and how the Pharisees and even how the disciples of John did things. Uh, John and his disciples were huge supporters of Jesus and Jesus' ministry. 
So there's no weird conflict going on there. Matthew tells us that they were also present at this time. So it wasn't just the Pharisees. The Pharisees were there and also the disciples of John. And Matthew kind of makes it sound like it was John's disciples that asked this question. Uh, why is it that we're fasting and you're not? Is, is kind of <laughs> how it comes across, right? And, it, and fasting was a big part of their culture. The Pharisees would fast two to three times a week. Uh, this wasn't so much to honor God as it was to hold it over the heads of other people or to look super spiritual or super godly. That's why Jesus gave the correction to them specifically to say, you know, when you fast, don't tell anybody. It's nobody's business. Don't try and impress people, you know, with that. However, John the Baptist and his disciples also fasted, and their reason was more about a repentance for themselves and for the nation of Israel. That John, like I said, was a person that was really intense. His ministry was to call the nation to repent. And so a lot of his ministry had this intensity about it, about this kind of grieving and mourning the state of Israel and looking for the, what the Messiah was going to do. And that didn't change even when Jesus was on the scene. There was still that intensity about it. And still the way that they did things, uh, a big part of it was fasting. And we see the contrast that Jesus, while there were times that he fasted, and there were times that we see him in prayer, we also see him at wedding feasts and at other feasts. And Jesus feasted a lot. And he was with people a lot. And, and you get the idea that there was this joyfulness that they're like, wait a second. Why are we fasting? And you guys are like having a party. Every time we see you, you guys are eating. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. Right? How can the people fast when the bridegroom is with them? Right? And again, this is a very fresh. You know, we just had the wedding for Michael and Nakoma last night. And, and imagine, you know, you're at this great wedding, and, and they just go, you know what? We've de decided there's no food. Instead, we are going to spend the next two hours in prayer and fasting and mourning. People are like, what? This is the worst wedding ever. And it doesn't fit. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm here, and it's a time to celebrate. This is a joyful time. The Messiah has arrived. He is walking among them. He is teaching. He is raising up the disciples. This is a time of joy. And, and again, I love that, you know, that Jesus was joyful. Jesus told jokes. And again, that's one of those things that, that we miss because we read through the scripture so fast. And we're like, well, that's a weird statement. And a lot of times, just a little Bible hack, if you read something Jesus says and it comes off weird, good chance it's a joke. And you, when you go back and read it, 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 it with humor, you're like, that's pretty funny, right? The whole thing of the, how can you remove the, speck from someone's eye when there's a plank in your own, that's a funny picture. It, it's humorous, and it's meant to be humorous, right? And so John and his disciples are like, look, we're fasting. We're making these sacrifices. We're serious about the things of, you know, Israel's repentance. And Jesus is like, yeah, we're having dinner, right? <laughs> and we're serious about those things too, but we can be serious about those, and we can be joyful too, right? I believe it's in the book of Isaiah where um, we get this just little this glimpse of something that happened in Israel. And it started off with a good idea, where once a year, the priests and other people in Israel would enter into this day of mourning and fasting. 
And it went on for just about 40 years. And it was in the 40th or just before the 40th year that the priests decided to pray and talk to the Lord. And they're like, Lord, shall we continue in this day of fasting, this day of lament and this day of, you know, just making ourselves miserable? And the Lord's response is awesome because he says, I never asked you to do that. You, you put this upon yourself. And he goes on to say, is this the fast I've required? That you would make yourself miserable and, and all of these things? The fast I, I've required is that you would show mercy. And, and I think we all do those things. We enter into the, oh, I'm doing this because I'm serious about the Lord. I'm going to prove that I'm serious about the Lord. You know, seriousness, what we call maturity, and other things like that, none of those are lifted, listed as fruits of the Spirit. But joy is. And I believe as, as Christians, we should have lives marked by joy. Again, we can take the things of Jesus very seriously. I think we, we need to. We're called to. We take the things of sin and mankind that is lost, and we take those seriously. But I think we need to also have a seriousness when it comes to joy. That we would be people that know how to rejoice and know how to be thankful and know how to encourage others with joy. Jesus stood apart from everybody else. And I believe that that was one of the key traits. And that even as John and the, or John's disciples and the Pharisees are like, why, why is it you get to do all this stuff? And we're making ourselves miserable. And the Lord's going, I've never required it of you. I've never required you to make yourself miserable. Now is the time of celebration and of joy. Now, he goes on to explain that that kind of over-seriousness and that over-intensity where we just feel like if, if we're joyful, we're somehow misrepresenting the Lord, uh, it makes us hard. And Jesus draws this by saying, look, I'm doing something new. Not something that's not in Scripture, not something that hasn't been spoken about, but it is new and unexpected of the people in that time. And he says, it's like sewing on new cloth to an old garment. Or it's like putting new wine in an old wineskin. In other words, if you're in that hard place, like, no, I'm serious all the time because I love Jesus. You won't be able to handle the things the Lord wants to do. It's just, it's going to tear you up. And as believers, even under the new covenant, we have to be careful not to get hard and jaded. And we've got to got to stay soft. What does the Holy Spirit want to do in us? How are we to be the messengers of the joy of the Lord to a lost world with real, authentic joy? We've got to stay soft to the Lord, right? Not have a bunch of our rules and laws and our fasts that we've heaped upon ourselves because we're so serious, but instead going, Jesus, what do you want to do? Lord, how do you want to reach those people? How do you want to connect with that person that's hurting? How, do, how can we make them feel welcome in our church and let them know that they are loved and that the joy of the Lord is real? Verse 23, as we finish up the chapter, it says, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain and the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you not read that David, or what David did when he was in need and hungry, 
he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest. And he also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we see that the Pharisees are watching Jesus every move. And it becomes real apparent, this little act, they're just walking through the grain fields. And it was really common that if you went through a grain field to just pluck off a little bit of grain and you take it, you kind of roll it up in your hands. I don't know if you guys have ever done this with wheat, but it, it leaves these little kernels and you blow away the chaff and it just leaves these little things that you can chew on. It's almost like gum or something. It's, it's very chewy. doesn't sound real appetizing the way I'm describing it, but it was super common back then for, for them to do this. It was no big deal. The Pharisees aren't upset that the disciples are doing this with the idea of like, they're stealing someone's grain. That's not it at all. It's that they're doing this on the Sabbath. And this was part of all the rules and the laws and stuff that they had created and that they had put together to say, well, okay, so what does it mean to break the Sabbath? What does it mean to labor on the Sabbath? And so they came up with the rules. Well, a farmer should not harvest on the Sabbath. And a harvest, or they should not, winnow the weed, they shouldn't blow away the chaff, and they shouldn't, you know, do all of these things. And so that's what they're accusing Jesus of allowing. And then the accusation is really against Jesus. Why are you allowing your disciples to do this? Why are you letting them harvest on the Sabbath day? Pluck their harvesting, right? Is it, that's how intense they're being about this. And, uh, and again, Jesus' answer is just beautiful. Because I think he, he does this a couple times where he points something out in Scripture that I don't think they'd ever considered. For being the, the masters or the, the teachers of the law, that when Jesus is like, have you ever thought about this? And they're like, oh, no. You know, because when it came to King David, for the most part, he could do no wrong. He was like a superhero. I mean, the whole thing with Bathsheba, yeah, that was wrong. But anything else, they're like, yeah, you know, King David was the best. And, and so he's like, remember when David went into the temple and went, hey, we're running from King Saul and I need some food. And, they, and Abathar said, well, I don't have any food except for the showbread. That's only for the priest. And David's like, great, I'll take that. And Abathar's like, great. And, and what Jesus to some degree is pointing out is that David and Abathar understood something. That people are more important. That true need is more important. And there's even a time to go, okay, I understand this rule, I understand this law, but this has to be a need that's supplied. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, David was right, Abathar was right, but yet he was breaking the law. Did you guys ever think about that? And again, I think they went, oh, no. And, <laughs> and, he, and then he points to the Sabbath. Now, of all the laws and rules for food and whatever else they had, and there was a ton of them, the Sabbath was the one that was above. I mean, it's so much centered around the Sabbath. And Jesus' statement is, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be a blessing. It's meant to be a time of joy. It's time, a time to, to, however we look at it, of rest, of being with the Lord, of being with your family. It's meant to be a blessing. It is not meant to be a heavy weight 
thrown upon the shoulders of men that they cannot bear. And that's exactly what the leaders had done. Now again, Jesus' statement, we can roll right over and not really understand when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's huge. And, and again, whoever these leaders were that asked him this, they would have just been like, ah, I can't believe you said that. Because to some degree, and again, we're kind of expanding a little bit, but by him saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, is him saying, here's how I know what the Sabbath is about. Because I created it. I, I rested on the very first Sabbath that ever existed after I created the whole universe. I know about the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of it. And I know what it was created for. It was meant to be a blessing. Now again, for us, there are those things that we think we're making a huge sacrifice for God to honor him. And I think it's great when that's true. But we need to be careful that we are not simply coming up with weights to tie and put upon our own shoulders or on the shoulders of others. Has God created something in our lives that's meant to be a blessing and we have turned it into a weight? Are there things in our lives that we're like, I know this is supposed to be good, but I just, I just can't get it. Or it's, I just feel like I'm wrong if I enjoy this or whatever it might be. Man, how we need to seek the Lord and maybe give up some of our own ideas or opinions or legalism, whatever it might be. Because he has given things for our joy, for our freedom. And if it is not something, or if it is something that is holding us down, that is weighing us down, it's a really good chance we need to give that up. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have come to give us life and give it more abundantly. Jesus, you love us. You, you pursue us. And you know how to point out those things in our life that we have weighed ourselves down with. We pray that you set us free. Pray that you give us your freedom, your abundance, that we could honor you in the freedom of our life and in the joy that comes from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.